New Zealand has a glittering history of success in motorsport around the world. And you just have to read out the names to understand why. Bruce McLaren, Denny Halm, Chris Amon, Graham Lawrence, David Oxton, Paul Radisich, Craig Baird. On two wheels, you've got the likes of Graham Crosby and Ivan Major, and more recently, the likes of Scott Dixon, Greg Murphy, Scott McLaughlin, Shane Van Gisbergen. But there is one driver that has achieved one of the ultimate successes in winning the 24 Hours of Le Mans, not once, but twice. He is probably the most successful and adaptable driver New Zealand has ever produced. He is Earl Bamba, and we welcome him to the pod. Talk to me about growing up on a farm in Whanganui. Where did the idea of even racing begin? Well, you can imagine where it began. Um, obviously, growing up on a farm in New Zealand in the early 90s, it was still a little bit loose. You could do what you want. So actually, Dad uh, go-karted when he was young. Not many people know that he was a go-kart racer, but he was a go-kart racer. Not a very good one if you call it that, but um, he knew the scene. He knew um, Raymond Hart and the Hart family, which is a very prominent uh, family in go-karting and stuff like that. So we grew up on the farm playing on, uh, actually sitting on dad's knee in uh, whatever the family car was at the time, uh, driving around paddocks and doing all sorts of stuff, driving up and down the road. And then naturally when it came to, I was seven years old, my brother was four or five at the time. Um, I got a go-kart for my first birthday and then we went down to the go-kart track. So that's sort of where it came from, and it came from Dad's passion, where he absolutely loves motor racing. So that's where it was sort of all birthed from, if you could say it. But apparently you weren't that flash. And Dad said, think about something else. You were slow, and Will was faster, your brother. Oh, totally. So, yeah, the, the, the age-old story goes is that we went around, and, and I loved driving. It was really cool. I mean, we as kids, we grew up on the farm. We got stuck in the ditch. We had to walk home so many times, and... Um, you know, I think I drove to town when I was five years old, if everyone knows the Wanganui River Road, which I think, didn't that used to be Rally New Zealand Road years it ago? It might have been, it might have been, yeah. Because I remember sitting down the road face watching rally cars when I was a kid, um, the old um, Subarus and stuff like that. So there was a bit of a baptism of fire of motor racing. But yeah, when we went go-karting, I, I remember I was driving around and we drove around for about a year or so. And I remember clear as day, dad came to me one day and he goes, um, do you really like doing this? And I said, yeah, I, I really love this. And he goes, that's good, but I would appreciate if you could go faster because I'm sick of going around the country finishing last. And he's like, are you sure you want to continue? I said, yeah, I'm sure. And he goes, okay, well, whatever. And then we're at Taranaki Go-Kart Club for a Gold Star event one day. And um, I said to him, look, uh, that trophy there, I'm going to win that. And he sort of went, Pfft mate, you even look like not finishing last in your entire life. What makes you ever think you can even win that trophy? And um, that day when I won the trophy and sort of since then continued winning races after that. So that's sort of when it all like clicked for me and changed, which was, I still remember clear as day that trophy. I've still got it at home. Um, yeah, it was, it was a cool day past. Um, who was it? Passing cadets around the outside in the, last, uh, in the last lap to win the weekend. So I remember it well. Are you sure it wasn't the trophy or that you just had to prove that your younger brother was slower than you? Well, you see, my brother wasn't driving at the time because my brother started when he was seven. So this was two years on and dad okay. wasn't going to accept me driving around for two years. And <laughs> I remember he took one of our go-karts out and he went out of the pits at Manawatu Go-Kart Club, went flat around the last corner. And my dad was like, geez, this guy's, a, this guy's an ace. Like, I've got a champion here. Went flat around the second corner. And he said, oh, this is even better. 
And then the third corner went through the fence. And then we didn't drive for six months, tried it a second time in six months, got one more corner. And then um, after a year, we started driving. So I could say we were both bad for equal amount of time. He was just trying to go flat around all the corners while I was puddling around. Do you simply love going fast? I simply just enjoy driving. I mean, um, I sort of mentor quite a, try and mentor quite a few young drivers. And I said to them, if you want to do this sport, you really need to, to love it. I mean, it's not, a, it's not something that you're going to get, you know, a multi-millionaire from. It's something that you absolutely have to love and, you know, have to want to live and breathe at every moment of the day to be able to be successful at it. So, you know, I just simply love going. I don't mind working on the cars or anything. I just like being around motor racing. I'm also pretty big fan of it too, to be honest. So, you know, watch NASCAR, watch V8 supercars, IndyCar, all that stuff sort of pretty religiously i'm a subscriber to all of them so um i just like motor racing talk to me about going to portugal for rotex did that open your eyes um actually going to the world finals with rotex max i think first of all it's a great platform it was to bring all the, the young guys around the world to sort of fight on a world stage and equal equipment because obviously going to europe many kiwis have tried and go karts you know wade coming in was probably the most successful mm-hmm. winning a world championship but there's equipment and equipment. So being able to sort of be Kiwis and stage ourselves on the world stage in equal equipment, you know, I know stories of Raymond when he tried to go over there, it was really, really hard. But, you know, we've, as a nation, been incredibly successful at that event um, always. So, you know, there was some big shoes to fill. But actually the biggest eye-opener for me was actually going to Australia for the first time. So I went over to the CIK Champs in Australia, 12-year-old kid, um, you know, going well, winning lots of races in New Zealand and stuff like that. And I remember just arriving in Australia and the first time I went on a first practice session, I got punted off a road, off the road by um, an Australian guy and then pointed to an Australian flag on his helmet on the back. So I remember that quite vividly. It was in Dubbo in the middle of Australia. And um, yeah, that was my first invitation into welcome to the big boys um, because obviously over there, they allow a lot more contact and it's a lot harder racing compared to what we're used to in New Zealand. So that was sort of the big eye-opener of the world stage, and it certainly made me a lot better when I came back to New Zealand as well. So you always had to challenge those boats. But I think the biggest thing I learned from all that is it's sort of like playing backyard cricket. You know, when you go over to your mate's house, he knows the pitch. You know, he knows where the ball's going to bounce and where to throw those sort of, you know, those little tricks. And it's the same whenever you go overseas. Um, you're going to go and play in their backyard. And, you know, you don't know it. So you've got to learn all the tricks as fast as you can. You've got to work even harder than them. And, you know, often people ask, are the European guys, when we go, when all us Kiwis go to race in Europe, are they better than us? No, they're not better than us because we've got an amazing pool of talent down in New Zealand that, you know, there's so many guys that didn't make it through, you know, um, you know, Andrew Waite, Michael Bidet, just to name a few when, when me and Shane raced together, that could have easily gone onto the world stage as well. And um, it just shows the pedigree that we've got. But when you go over to their backyard, they know all the tricks. So you've got to remember that and sort of give your time and sort of almost cheat the system, go testing and get a local to show the tricks. A little bit like when they come down here for the Toyota Racing Series, you see that opposite where, you know, um, you know, Brendan Leach, every time Teratonga in Bukalgui is on the front row, you know, because he knows that place like the back of hands. And it's no different for us. If you go to Hockenheim, I mean, you get you get your ass kicked for a, for a day or two until you know the track. So that was sort of what Portugal was as well. Um, and I, but it was also a great, you know, foot peg to finish on the podium at the world championship and then be able to make uh, my way into race cars back in New Zealand. 
but also important when you talk about the development of a driver to know what it takes to compete at the highest level because New Zealanders are constantly criticised for being maybe mentally not the toughest in the world. So for you, that must have been a critical moment or moments going forward. Yeah, it, it was really good. Um, obviously, it was good because my dad was always challenging the boundaries. He was sort of like, you know, I think without having a big motor racing background, he was probably the best uh, person to guide us through because he's pretty brutally harsh if you're fast or slow. Um, he just interrupted our call before to ask why we were slow on the weekend or what happened in the pit lane. So, you know, and he puts it blunt, but that's what you need um, as a young kid growing up in sport because there's no, you know, you either win or you lose, basically. That's my sort of opinion in that there's no second or third. You, you just need to keep working until you manage to win. And it's mainly hard work and execution. And he was very good at that. Um, he was very, very good at teaching us that. And that's what Australia was good for. He said, OK, you're good in New Zealand. Now try Australia until you win in Australia. And then that sort of prepared us for the world champs as well. So he was always pushing us to the boundaries and the limits of all of that. You realise you sound like Ricky Bobby there for a moment? If you're not first, you're last. Oh. <laughs> well, I, you know, a big, a big dream of mine is to drive NASCAR one day. So um, oh, wow. I'm working on it pretty hard at the moment is um, because many, many years ago, not many people actually know this story, but um, actually Richard Childress came to New Zealand and if anyone knows the Richard Childress name in racing, he obviously ran Dale Earnhardt, the late Dale Earnhardt, for most of his career winning all the championships. So he came to New Zealand and I met him there. And then in 2007, I actually came to America and uh, hung out with him and went to all the big races and stuff like that. So I've known him now for more than 13 years, actually. And uh, we're working on working on some stuff at the moment, which uh, hopefully will come through. He offered me a drive uh, in 2016, actually, to do Xfinity Series, but I wasn't allowed to do it with Porsche. So um, it's a dream of mine to go into to NASCAR one day. I've done so much other stuff that I, I probably have to try that, right? Well, yeah, you are an incredibly versatile driver. Let's just bring it back a little bit. You got me excited about that, though. I've got to be honest with you. You have to go through single series. It's that, that progression in New Zealand. Talk to me about Formula BMW. You go, go into this Formula BMW Asia and suddenly go and win the whole damn thing. How did that come about? Well, actually, we were doing Formula Forward, and then we were looking for, obviously, different things to do, and, and we got a chance to go test after the World Finals, which they held a World Finals, a little bit the same as go-kart, so that was quite attractive, and it was a platform that was all around the world. So it was in uh, Europe, it was in USA. And uh, we figured that Asia is also a good place to to benchmark ourselves. So it was a it was a good chance. We got a, got a good deal. And um, we sort of were doing on a race by race, sort of winging it as we could get funding together. So it was really great to be able to, let's say, finish that off and win that championship. It was my first ever championship win. I think the biggest rival at the time was actually Dan Ricardo. So he's gone on to do some great things. And that year, we wanted to do the world final, but unfortunately, we couldn't. We couldn't get the funding together, which was a bit of a shame. But in the end, that's sort of what motor racing is all about. And then I uh, came back home to do the Toyota Racing Series. Sort of learned and struggled a bit in the first season, but then was taken under the wing with the Giltrap Group and uh, the A1GP Junior Team. And then that was, um, you know, a great pathway, a great mentorship. I was mentored by uh, Stephen Giles, who's obviously very, very yeah. famous in New Zealand racing, and, and Lyle Williamson. and um, they sort of, I would say, crafted me into into a better driver in that year. Yeah. Was it single seat is the way you wanted to go? Was that, you know, the dream? Yeah. I mean, when you grow up as a young kid, Formula One was always the dream. And, um, you know, that was definitely what my goal was, was to go into Formula One. And 
I did the sort of Toyota racing series and then we managed to to pull together a bit of funding to be able to do a, a race with Formula Masters in Europe, which we which Chris Vandergrift at the time was racing. And I'd done a couple A1 GP junior um, test sessions. And I remember it clear as day because I was actually never ever scheduled or never meant to drive the A1 GP car in the season that I did or ever race it. And um, I remember we did the test in Centerton and I was the only one there because Chris was away doing something. And Chris was always supposed to do the first race and do the season. Vandertrift, he was always penciled for that. And because he didn't win at the race that I was at, this is how motor racing goes sometimes, it's very funny, he then needed to do the final race. And I remember the, doing the test clearance day and I said, well, who's doing the first race? Because like I'm just a rookie. And they said, oh, you're doing the first race in Zandvoort. And I remember, I remember Colin telling me that, and I was a bit uh, flabbergasted because I was just 17, I think, or 18 at the time, and I didn't really, I knew what I was doing, but I wasn't prepared in any way to go to that level of single-seater racing because of the vast experience of the other guys. And then a lot of people, um, we finished second and third in our first ever race, um, which was a phenomenal result. But it was... I mean, I still didn't 100% know what I was doing. Does that make sense? Or I had the experience. Yeah. So yeah. I was. Also, I would also say that there was a bit of a hindrance, you know, to go from a 200 horsepower, you know, Toyota Racing Series car driving in tracks in New Zealand to in Europe against world-class guys that are on Champ Car, IndyCar, you know, GP2, everything like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, be racing with them. Um, so I'd say experience let me down at that time. But at the end, that's sort of the way you have to go in sport, that you have to take those chances and, you know, either, either single swim. What was it like representing New Zealand in the A1 car? Because it was all about the, you know, racing for your nation and the whole nine yards. Do you think it was doomed to fail? But I'm intrigued about the car itself and what a beast it was. Oh, I mean, to be honest, I think it was one of the coolest forms of motor racing that we've, we've seen in so many years. And it's such a shame that it happened to stop because it was incredible racing. And the fact that it gave you everything, you know, I remember, you know, Formula One was a dream, but when you're in New Zealand Toy Racing Series and we had the, the ladder to go through, that was the dream, was to drive the A1GP car for New Zealand. We were lucky enough that the Giltrap family who have been supportive for so many years, and, and I'll touch on sort of a dream that we're trying to re-realise now as well in the future for young drivers later on. But, you know, the fact that you could just be the best driver for New Zealand and go into that car was something pretty special for everybody to aim at in the entire country and put a real buzz in motor racing. So, you know, I think that was something that was special. And then to be able to be that one person, um, big pressure on the on the shoulders, you know, to represent everyone else in New Zealand because we've got such a good depth of talent. And But then the thing's just a monster. Like, I just remember, I remember the first time driving it in Sepang with that Lola and, you know, you turn into a corner and basically you're trying to turn the steering wheel because it's got no power steering, unwind your, unwind your arms. And you're like, God, this thing's an absolute beast. Um, now that I look back at it, it's quite funny because I'm used to a lot faster cars and stuff like that. But, you know, when you're a 17 year old kid, it's, it's massively, massively fast. You know, when you ever get to anything between one to one power ratio, I think probably a, a, a sprint car in the dirt would probably be something similar. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. But, you know, all that single-seater, big, high-horsepower single-seater, funny enough, later on live, gave me the chance to drive the um, LMP1 car. Yeah, we'll talk about that wonderful LMP1 uh, part of your history. Uh, what did driving the specific different cars teach you about being a driver that could adapt? 
Well, I think adaptability is something that's really, really important. You know, you see a lot of kids that they focus on one discipline. Um, we didn't have the luxury to go with huge budgets and just focus on one discipline. So it's sort of like drive anything that you could. Um, and funny enough, you know, I, I do coach a lot of young kids now and, you know, dads are always like, well, teach my son to be fast. And one interesting thing that, that I always tell them is at the end of the day, there's there's a sort of a style that you can create in driving. And at one point you need to express and be your own driver and your own style. So, you know, what works for me might, there's the basic techniques of how to do driving. That's for sure. And there's the fundamental base. So I guess if you're talking about golf or, or rugby or cricket, you know, there's the fundamental basics that your coach teaches you, but then, you know, those, those talented players, they still bring their own sort of flair to the game and their own sort of twist on it, which is maybe not the conventional way to do it, but it's their way. And if you try to change them from that, they, they also just get worse or you're never going to change it. So at the same time, you need to have those different elements about your driving and driving different cars brings you different experiences and different ideas. And then when you get to the point where you develop a race car, you say to yourself, well, hang on a minute, I did this over there and um, you know, this worked and it was more prominent for instance, even when I went from Porsche to V8 supercars into Bathurst with Triple Eight, massive experience team. But you see some stuff over there that you say, "Wow, those guys do that really, really good. Why don't we do that?" And then you know they, and then you go there and you say, "Hey, we do that. Why don't you do this?" Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting, and that's sort of like also a team style thing as well. So driving technique wise, also now more so than ever, you learn different things from your teammates as well. So you know when you grow up in single seaters, you're always fighting against your teammate and now you're sharing sort of all your secrets about how to drive with your teammates so you know let's say me and Lawrence we always discuss about how we're going to drive you know and try to pick each other up so that was sort of a different going to sports car racing eventually is also a different thing normally you want to absolutely you know basically kill your teammate and destroy them because that's your only reference and now in uh, sports car racing you know you need to be your, as fast as you're your best mate because um, obviously that is the weakest part of your team. Or could be. You talk about adaptability. Where the hell did the time attack come around? You won a world champion time attack. What goes on there? Well, that was at a time I wasn't doing much racing. So I actually went for a time and period where I didn't race from 2010 to 13. And um, Peter Cunliffe, who was running me in Formula Forward um, at the time, way back when, he called me up. And um, I remember I met Murray Coote years ago. And he said, oh, my mate Murray Coote's got this World Time Attack car. Do you want to come and you've driven high downforce cars before in the past. Do you want to come do this? And um, yeah, that was a wild experience. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sure I'd do it again because you look back and you realize that what, they're not that safe. But, you know, it was, it was a crazy, crazy thing. And it's a really, really cool event, different style, like different style of motor racing. But also to, to be able to develop a car from a pure clean sheet was something pretty wild and pretty crazy. I mean, can you, the, the can you explain it? Can you explain it? Well, just imagine like, you know, you bring, you turn up and you just want to bring your road car and then you start cutting everything out that you could ever imagine. And, you know, we had all sorts of problems and like but very, very bizarre problems for a racing car. But it's sort of, it's sort of hard to explain. And you get there and you throw it all on the track and you go, God, how do I go faster? Like, how are we? And you've only got one lap because the tires are not possible. But how are we going to go faster? Like, oh, we'll just turn the turbo up. And then you blow the engine apart and you're like, oh, we'll rebuild the engine and try to get even more power into it. And, um, you know, like even that thing had 720 wheel horsepower. 
And I said to, with a road car tire, I said, Murray, we can't use 720 horsepower out of the corner. So we had to put a boost button. So basically, because we didn't have traction control, so we could use low power coming out. And then as soon as we were a straight push full power. Um, and I think you'd nearly top over 300 going into turn one, which is way quicker than the supercar. So, you know, these sorts of cars in its infancy was, um, you know, really, really wild and crazy. I remember actually, the, the, you're, you're like this. So the first time we drove, the rear wing snapped out of the rear bootleg. <laughs> and then we were like, because we didn't expect it's got that much downforce. So the solution was, is that we taped the jack stands in the back of the car so that the wing couldn't go down any further. So that was some really wild racing if I look back at what we're doing right now. What was it? What you haven't actually said what the car was. Oh, it's a, so if anyone ever wants to see, type in Hammerhead S13 into YouTube. It's, the reason why I got the Hammerhead is um, actually the designer had the idea to put big winglets out the side because obviously there was no regs on whip. So we've got these massive wings and it looks like a bit of like a Hammerhead shark because it was just um, black carbon and white. So um, if you want to check it out, you'll, then you'll see what we're talking about and you'll be like, what? Never seen something like it. So to give you a reference, those, those cars now are faster than what the A1 GP car was and it's a tin top car on semi-slicks. Want to go back That's and do it again? Oh, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> hey, before we get to the Porsche story, because it's a huge part of your life, what were you doing in Mongolia? Oh, in Mongolia. So <laughs> in that time when I wasn't right, I've been to Mongolia many times. I even had my 21st birthday in Mongolia. So um, we were there and I was commentating for a thing called Super League Formula. So I got into that by um, knowing some of the commentators and I originally did some work for Eurosport. And then, um, you know, being Kiwis and trying to stay in Europe, just finding odd jobs. So I was commentating for Eurosport. And then someone, the director knew me and got me a gig doing co-commentary for this random championship called Super League Formula. And then, um, so they all knew that I raced and there was always this common joke, hey, you should go race. So, you know, we went to Inner Mongolia, which is one of the rounds. And, you know, it's a, it's a coal mining city. So they've got a lot of money and they've just built this gigantic racetrack in the middle of nowhere and there's no one there. Um, and it's one of those Chinese ghost cities. So basically it's built for like 10 million people, about 100,000 people live there. Um, very, very bizarre. Like, um, you know, it's where Genghis Khan lives or used to live, obviously <laughs> went to his tomb. But um, so we, we arrived there and I'm sort of getting set up commentary and stuff and then someone comes up and goes oh you're driving well done congrats i'm like no I'm not and they're like yeah you are i'm like no i'm not and then finally after a day the boss of the series comes and goes well alvaro Parent forgot to get his visa so you need to drive the car and then there was a big discussion because i said well and he goes yeah you can just drive for free and i said no no you need to pay me because i came here to earn money so <laughs> I need to be paid, mate. So there was this huge discussion about how they're going to pay me. And then eventually they were like, because I was the only driver with a license, they had to pay me. But then I was like, well, I don't have any gear. So then I had to go borrow everyone else's spare suit and boots and gloves. That's why when you look at the photos from that race, I'm in John Martin's helmet. It's actually his rain helmet because it's got a fluoro yellow virus, which was horrible to drive with in the day. And um, I remember it clearly because we went out and we qualified well, like sixth. And the first race we finished third. And then it's a full reverse grid race. And I hadn't raced in so long. It was two 50-minute back-to-back races. Those cars are so big and heavy. And I was I was just dying at the end of the second 50 minutes because it was like literally a 10-minute break. And I'm like, I've had this in so long. 
And we just got through the super final and started sixth. And if anyone remembers Super League, it's basically a five lap sprint to win 100,000 euros. So I went out and then I was like, right, I've got at least another good five laps in me. Like, I've got to do this. And we managed to win the super final. Um, unfortunately, as motor racing goes, you don't always get all that prize money, which would be great. But because I don't pay, then someone else takes it. But it was crazy story. And then the second weekend, we went in China and around the Olympic Rowing Stadium and managed to win again. So um, won two, ra- two rounds of that, which was absolutely hilarious, um, making a comeback. And then that's where I sort of stayed up in Asia and started also with the Porsche stuff. Yeah, and we must talk about that. It's a huge part of your life, uh, the Porsche story. How did the Porsche journey begin? Well, actually, the first ever time I drove a Porsche was Mike Morton's Porsche in Rapuna in New Zealand. That was the first ever time I'd ever raced a, a Porsche. So, and I remember that so well because it was racing against like Johnny Reed, Dan Gaunt, you know, Craig Beard, and it just finished there, one thing. And those guys were still big names, you know, at that time, especially Craig Beard. And he had a shocking weekend and we finished third, first ever time out that weekend. So that was pretty cool. And then I was up coaching in, in Asia and then a good friend of mine, um, he said, oh, well, do some hot laps with me one day and did some hot laps. And then all of a sudden he said, oh, you're really quick. And he, he bought me a car for the season. And then we had a, a sponsor together and then the sponsor pulled out and typical Kiwi fashion, we managed to find enough money just to pay the entry fee and get to the first race. And my main goal at that time was there was an international cup scholarship. And that's the thing that uh, I wanted to win. It wasn't sort of much the championship. It was that that was my one shot. If I wanted to make it through, I had to get into the international uh, cup scholarship. So that was the main goal. And we were, we were fighting every weekend to do that. And, um, you know, managed to start winning races. First race win was in Zuhai. And, you know, everyone thought that we, we didn't have any budget. So like we didn't have, you know, break sensors on the car. People would ask like what brake balance you're running. We had no idea because we're just literally getting this thing weekend to weekend. And um, we actually ran out of money going to the Singapore Grand Prix. So we had no more money. We're out. And then um, my longtime sponsor now, LKM, um, they came on board and they, in the background, silently um, paid to finish the season. So that's where that relationship started. And um, we also rewrote the history of um, Porsche uh, being able to apply for sponsors at Formula One weekends as well, because we managed to, we got some Michelin sponsors off some tires one weekend. We did this massive Michelin branded car, which was really cool. And I remember it well, because it was Singapore Grand Prix and it was Craig Beard that was coming to race and he was still winning everything that there was in Porsches. And he was the reference. So that was my goal that weekend to beat Craig Beard. It never been better than Singapore. And we managed to out-qualify him and, and win the race. And that was sort of like a, a tick in the right direction that we're, we're going in the right direction, being good and driving a Porsche. And um, But I remember we got in big trouble by Bernie Ecclestone because they were trying to put the Pirelli deal together and there was this Porsche with entire Michelin and because we were at the front, it was always being played everywhere. So now anytime you want to race a Porsche or anything in a Grand Prix weekend, you have to fill in the form about what your sponsors are and they have to pre-approve it now, um, thanks to us. So they were really impressed with that. And... Um, but that was a funny background story. And then we managed to go to the International Cup Scholarship and already had a plan of how to map it out and how to win the championship. And um, that's sort of how that came about. I was also lucky enough that uh, now a long time, my engineer that guided me through Super Cup, Axel Flankenhorn, who's very, very um, well-known at Porsche, used to race 
962s and 935s at Le Mans, finished on the podium there. Um, he got me a Porsche Mobile and Super Cup gig and the final round in Abu Dhabi. And talking about going to play in people's backyard, no one ever driven there. But I'd been there once before, so I at least knew the track and how to drive it. And we managed to finish second in the first ever Super Cup race. So that was sort of a good footing um, leading into the season. And then obviously 2014, again, backyard thing, I knew the only way to win is that you have to drive more than everyone else if you want to catch up. So in that season, we did Crow Cup Asia, Crow Cup Germany and Porsche Mobile One Super Cup. So at one point in time, we led every single championship. Um, we had to stop with Porsche Cup Germany because of clashes. That was always the plan. I remember. But, um, yeah. But that was... Um, like a really, really crazy season going back and forth, uh, traveling everywhere, driving Porsche Cup cars all the time. And actually now a longtime friend. Um, so my engineer was obviously then my future boss at Porsche, um, who's in charge of the LMP1 program as well. So, you know, it's always a very, very small world on who you meet uh, with all this stuff as you, as you go up through. But that was a fantastic season. And obviously that season was mainly just the goal to become a Porsche Works driver not actually to go into the, the LMP1 car at the time. How big a deal is it from people that don't really understand motorsport to become a Porsche works driver? Is that like getting the golden egg? Yeah, I mean, we all know that it's hard to make money in motor racing. Um, there's not many of us that get paid to go around the world. And in the end, there's only a few, very, very few Porsche factory drivers in the world. And sort of to be in that allotted group and Porsche is sort of well-known to select the best drivers was sort of amazing um, to be able to be in that group. And then obviously those are the guys that you've looked up to for years, you know, like since 2010, you know, you look up to a guy like Craig Beard, but then you look at the Porsche works drivers, you know, Timo Bernard, Mark Lieb, um, you know, Richie Leeds, you know, Bergmeister, they, they were sort of legends in, in a Porsche and knowing how to drive them. And now, you're competing against them was something, you know, really, really special to be in that sort of same loop. And first in the time you drive with them, you sort of like just want to be quiet because they talk about stuff that you don't even, I mean, you're used to a cup car, like just throttle brake drive. And they're talking about TC and, you know, you know, dampers and dampers, you know, tuning the engines, everything. And, you know, you've got no experience of it. So you just got to be a big sponge. And, you know, for me, when I became a Porsche works driver, my first season was a bit of a mix between doing the LMP1 stuff and then obviously um, IMSA. And I had Jörg Bergmeister as my teammate. And, you know, for me, that was the best teammate that I could have had as a young guy coming through because he was phenomenal in teaching me, you know, everything that he knew. So he was a big role model in, in that year. i got to talk about this LMP1, the 919 hybrid. What a machine. Tell us about this machine because... I'm told, having spoken to Brendan Hartley, you're constantly working that thing. Oh, definitely. Like, uh, I remember when I got, I got a call to do the shootout. So, because um, everyone else, how do they choose? And basically, I got a shootout against Fred McAvicki at uh, Abu Dhabi. And if you talk about pressure situations, you get, they gave us each 15 laps. Five laps to learn the car, and then they had 10 laps, new tyres, and then they'd choose who, who went. And they were basically trying to, you know, pressure cook us and see who could crack under pressure or not. So mm. it was actually, I, I loved it. It was a really good challenge to do that because you just had to go out and try to do it and see what you have. Um, but 
yeah, it was phenomenal. The first ever time you drive it, like 12, 1300 horsepower, the whole hybrid system just whirs up. And yeah, it's so, so fast. I was lucky that I'd driven high powered cars in the past, obviously. Otherwise, you'd just been uh, completely lost. And then the whole thing of the systems, the, everything that you've got to do inside was then another level, you know, like talking about things that you can do my knowledge about a racing car and, and race car dynamics was blown away in that one year of, of learning. So, you know, you probably can't really describe it. It's sort of, it's just the fastest thing you've ever driven. And sometimes the, they're probably the easiest thing to actually describe is you walk the track and you look at a corner and you're like, nah, you've got to break or you've got to do this. And you don't, it's just flat. Or you drive the simulator and we've all driven, you know, simulators, iRacing or something like that. And, you sort of play, it actually would be a little bit equivalent if everyone's played Gran Turismo with that really ridiculous ripple car in there and you say, well, oh, that's not possible and everything's flat everywhere. That's sort of like what that's like. You go on the simulator, oh, no, that's not possible to be flat everywhere. Like, Rouge is not flat at 320 kilometres an hour easily. And you go out and you go through there and sometimes it's even faster than what it was in the simulator. And you're like, that's just ridiculous. So that's sort of, and you watch the onboards and sometimes it doesn't look real. So it's crazy. So let's talk about Le Mans because we're talking to a two-time winner of Le Mans and you used to live down the road from someone that won Le Mans, Chris Amon. So I'm told that one big part of the experience is actually a couple of, or the day before we actually all gather in the town centre. Can you take us through the process? Because it sounds like it's an experience that has to be lived. Oh, totally. I mean, Le Mans is something special in itself, just the whole ritual, the whole procedure. So, you know, it starts off in the, the, the scrutineering, where the scrutineering's downtown and the fans and the people all come out and it's sort of this legendary status. And I think for me, the thing that I've always told myself about Le Mans is that it's not about beating your competition in the beginning. It's actually trying to beat the race itself. and and when you say that, it's sort of like, okay, it sounds really simple, but what you have to do is drive around and not crash into something, don't go into the pits and don't get a penalty, and you generally end up on the podium. But that simple sequence of things is actually really, really difficult to do. Then you start winding each other up about that. You need to go beat each other and be faster, and then the issues start to encounter. So, you know, we just went out there and, you know, we did the whole and then you've got the parade where you're sort of celebrated as drivers. And I think it's the only place, the only race in the world where you are celebrated like that as a driver, you know, and sort of feel like you're almost getting prepared to go for battle, if you know what I mean, the following day. And then you go into the race and you've got the pre-race ceremony and, and stuff like that. But you really have to just block it out and um, go do your job. But it's definitely nerve-wracking, especially starting there for Porsche, because it's the most successful car brand and that year we we're also expected to win. So, you know, you get the board members come there and, you know, everyone's looking upon you and you've got everything that you can possibly prepare and you've got to go out and do the business and sort of, we're the ones that have to execute it. It's not that we do a good job better than the others. We have to execute this perfectly precision plan. And mm. the other thing is, is that it's actually even more beautiful than Formula One in many terms because you know, we do, I think, about 34, 36 pit stops with the fuel range in the, in the race. But, you know, in Formula 1, if you lose one second in the pit stop, okay, it's bad, but it's not 
It's not a disaster if you're a race or two seconds. It's not a disaster. You times that by 30 stops and you're losing one minute. And it's just one minute of a race that you're never, ever going to get back. So in many ways, in those races, the tense or the small one or two seconds left on the table there, because it's multiplied over such a distance, is pure time left on the table. So in many ways, you have to be even more accurate and more on the limit for an entire 24 hours than any normal sprint race as well. So that's what also builds up the whole intensity of the thing. And then you stay up for 36 hours in the emotion and then... I tell you, the worst time of your life is if you're leading with three hours to go. You can't get back in. You've got nothing to do. It's just bloody horrible. It's the worst thing ever until you cross the finish line because you know that you could blow up or get a puncture or it's it's just horrible. Apart from that feeling, is there a sense of fear? How high do the fear limits go, particularly driving at night around that circuit? Oh, to be honest, we don't even think about it. Um, I only ever went off once with the LMP1 car. Um, and you never really think about how fast you're going or what you're doing until something goes wrong. And then you realize you're going to go, you're going really, really fast and you're going to hit the wall. It's going to hurt. Um, so I don't, you just don't ever think about it. You just sort of get in that tunnel vision and you're just going and going and going. You're not really thinking about anything that could go wrong, if you know what I mean. Yeah, do you think that's a part of a competitive race driver's psyche that they're strapped in, know the kits, know what they're doing, that really speed is a material and that if it does, as you said, goes wrong, goes wrong, but it's never part of the equation? I think there's always a good saying that if you want to be a good race car driver, you need to be just stupid enough to be a good race car driver. <laughs> and I think... Um, I think people also talk about that in, in the sense that they're good at just switching off their brain and not thinking about all that stuff. You know, they've got one common goal in their mind, which is they want to win the race. And, you know, I could speak for Lawrence and a few guys that, you know, if they want, they can risk all to go in and they're not afraid of crashing or they're not even thinking about it. And, you know, like I said, that's the, that's one of the key things. And, I learned that very well. I had a president scholarship from Motorsport New Zealand, um, which was a huge help. They um, put me in touch with a guy called Dr. Kerry Spackman. And um, he's done a lot of mental coaching with various people, I think even with um, Team New Zealand. And um, was really interested about mind mapping and you know, learning how to switch off your brain at the right moment and the right time to focus at that time. And I think that's what you've got to learn as a race car driver to be focused on the, the task at hand. But then also you've got to learn when to risk and when not to risk. So when to, you know, when to be safe and when to be fast is another thing that you've got to learn. I guess that comes with age. I'm getting I'm getting old now, I'm getting 30 when I talk about stuff like that. Normally when you're young, you just talk about going fast. Wow, you're 30, you're really old. Describe describe the elation and the moment you win your first Le Mans. Yeah, I mean, I think Everyone asks me always to put winning Le Mans into, into words, but I don't think you can really, you can't describe it in words because I'm not, I'm not good. I'm not a wordy person either. If, any, if you've ever tried to write an email with me, you'll totally understand what that's all about. I can do numbers. I love numbers, but I'm not a words person. I can't even spell Netflix right if I try that. Um, <laughs> I spell it CK instead of X. Um, it's Netflix. 
yeah, Netflix S with an S. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they um, yeah, but I think the easiest thing is go back and watch the you know if you watch the pictures mm. and the emotion and the elation of absolutely everyone, and then you know even if I watch the, the video today, you get goosebumps about seeing that whole thing. And it's not so much as well the day as well it's also the journey that you've done with the guys so you know at the time we had like 360 people on the team um when we had the three cars there in that year in 15 we had 175 people trackside and you've got to remember that everyone's lived and breathed this for for 12 months it's been everybody's life and many of the you know engineers they live at porsche or work near porsche but their families maybe in france or belgium or something like that and their life is winning Le Mans, you know, and it's the same for the drivers. And I think it's that whole journey as an entire team and organization at the realization that you've, you've got your goal. I think that's also what makes it so sweet as well, to be honest. And then, you know, the crazy thing that I look back as well is that first, the last time that Porsche won was 97, no, sorry, 98, 98, I should get my Porsche history right. And, you know, me and Brendan, we were we were eight years old at Manitou Go-Kart Club, swinging on chairs and cadets playing, you know, eating ice cream. And if you'd watched the news and said, oh, well, you two are going to be the next people that are going to represent Porsche and, and win Le Mans for them as eight-year-olds, that's a crazy thought. And then, obviously, um, then to go later on and then win with Brendan a few years later was something also phenomenal. You know, childhood friend growing up in Manawatu go-kart track with two Kiwis, you know, you know, like like the guys of 66. They called us always the crafty Kiwis of 66 the entire season when we were together. Um, you know, to be able to do that was something was something special as well with, with BH. The one thing I remember about that win with Hartley was you sitting on the side of the car coming back through pit lane and this ridiculously big grin on your face. It was it, it it made me give goosebumps. I mean, do you remember that moment? You were just you you couldn't stop smiling. It was like glued on. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, um, it was it was an amazing moment. And the other thing is is that people don't know how close that race was uh, because we got told as soon as we cracked, or as soon as we had the issue, that we can go flat out. And once the uh, the final LMP one car stopped, it looked the way it played out. It was easy. It looked easy on TV, but if anyone watches the race back, um, the LMP1 car did a tail change and basically did the tail change and lost, I think, 45 seconds or a minute. And with that mistake, if they didn't do that, they the prediction, because we ran a big race simulation, the prediction was is that we were going to pass entry Porsche corners on the last lap with their P2 car. So that was how close the race was up until that point. Um, and that's why we were going flat out. And you can imagine on strategy, if there was one safety car, one slow zone, it was changing the race result always. So it was nerve wracking up until the point where we actually passed because before they made that mistake for hours, we were like, Is, are we gonna make it? And that's how close it was. And that was why it was such an intense sprint race. And then obviously to get that, um, thinking that we we're going to break down again because we also had some reliability issues still um, was just pure elation. It was it was great. I mean, yeah, why wouldn't you smile so big when you <laughs> get that? What does it feel like to be a two-time Le Mans winner? Because many people say it is 
the greatest race in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm still current. So, you know, you talk about, you know, people like, you know, Chris Amon, you know, Bruce McLaren, Denny Holm and the things that they achieve and then obviously winning two times Le Mans in the World Championship. Sort of never imagined yourself in that with those people in any way, to be honest. So I probably, I still see it that I've just, you know, won a race and there's still plenty more things that I want to achieve and, and plenty more things that I want to do. Um, but probably later on in life, you'll probably reflect on it and say, it's amazing, incredible. But at the time, it's sort of like, that's the goal. And then what's the next goal? So, you know, I probably don't reflect on it enough, to be honest. But, um, you know, it is the ultimate challenge. There's still many more challenges that I'd like to win, you know, Nürburgring 24 and a few things like that, that we should have won now. We've led twice for four minutes in the lead. But that's the beauty of endurance racing, isn't it? And that's the challenge of it. Talk to me about your favourite track. What is the most challenging track that gives you that, who the tightening of the buttocks as you take in some corners, you go, yeah, I just love this. This is for a pure racer. Um, well, probably the most intense track that, that I still want to win at and annoys me that everyone that I should have was uh, Macau. So, you know, to do a lap around there through the mountain with a GT car is something on another level. And, you know, also when we get, all these fantastic drivers there line up at the GT World Cup is amazing. So that's probably my favourite race is, is the GT World Cup every year is, um, you know, to do a pure lap, to race it, it's not great, but to do a lap, to do a quality lap around there is something awesome. All right. You love, you love different circuits. Uh, to, to win on the mountain, Mount Panorama at Bathurst, is special for any Kiwi. Uh, you wrote 2018, you go and drive for Triple Eight. But in 2019, under your new motorsport team, you go and win the Bathurst 12-hour. What was the most satisfying, uh, winning as a team owner or actually driving in, a, in, in the great race? Oh, that great race, that's, that's a sore point with me. We should have won that easy. Because <laughs> we, I mean, we were second at the stop, just needed to put the brakes in and just round up Luke Gilden and we would have been away. We would have been home and dusted. Um, but in the end... Yeah, it was, for me, a big goal of mine. And it's something I still want to win the Bathurst 1000. So um, it was great to win as a team owner. But um, to be honest, to go there, to be able to go with Shane to the 1000 was something special. Um, you know, it was so cool to be able to go with some guy, you know, a guy that we grew up to, together racing go-karts, Formula Fords, and now do the Bathurst 1000 together. You know, we were we were quick enough to to have a shot winning that weekend. But you know, you know what those races are like. You got to have your cards full. But you know, just to be able to do it, and you know, I talked to the to Porsche and stuff like that, and they're like, "What's this Bathurst 1000 that you want to go do?" And um, like, it's the Bathurst 1000, and it's sort of like it's it's the Kiwi, it's Kiwi and Aussie, it's our Le Mans, it's our you know Nurburgring or Indy 500. It's it's our race that you have to win if you're you're an Aussie or a Kiwi. So, um, you know, it's still a race that I definitely want to win as well. You know, I, I put that race up there like Le Mans, to be honest, the Bathurst 1000, because it's such a, yeah, you know, every Sunday, every Kiwi household goes and watches Bathurst 1000, don't they, every October. And it's like every French family watches Le Mans, you know, Europe stops for Le Mans and, you know, Australia and New Zealand stops for Bathurst 1000 more or less. So, you know, to be able to go back and, and have another crack at that, a few more times is definitely something that I want to do. 
success seems to follow you around. You've won the IMSA WeatherTech Series last year. You're currently second in the championship right now. But you indicated earlier in this interview you want to do something a little bit different. You want to give back. You talked about a dream, a program. Of, of, and I, I suspect you want to give back in a different way. Yeah, like me and, me and my brother, we was here for the race team. And we, um, I remember when we were growing up in racing in New Zealand, we had a great, we, we had great racing, actually. We were in a golden era. I mean, we had, you know, 30, 35 NZV8s and, you know, 15, 20 GD3 Cup Porsches. And, you know, in Twitter Racing Series, we had like 20 Kiwis on the grid, not internationals. We had 20 Kiwis on the grid and motor racing was fantastic at that time and it, to be honest I, it's a real shame for young drivers as well at the moment that there's not that clear pathway and it's it's pretty scattered and pretty spotty in motorsport and motor racing in general at the moment and we want to try create a pathway that there's an opportunity for talented young kiwis to sort of make their way through so at the moment with the with the Giltrap um, family and, and Porsche New Zealand at the moment we're working on um, putting together a scholarship um, for young Kiwis so that they can sort of follow the pathway that I did with Porsche and have a chance to do um, Porsche Carrera Cup Asia or Porsche Carrera Cup Australia and then have that opportunity to go to um, Europe with the International One Rate Cup Scholarship and be able to have a young Kiwi say, look, I had my chance at being a professional race car driver. You know, I managed to go well. I won that international chance to go to an international scholarship mentor them through that and sit on the thing and say, I had my chance to stand in front of an international manufacturer that will give me a shot. Um, that's sort of the ultimate goal to be able to give back to young Kiwis and to be able to know that they've got something to shoot towards as well is something important. So we want to create it in the way that, you know, when you're a young go-karting kid, like the A1GP junior team was in New Zealand and then the A1GP car, that that's what you want to go drive. You want to drive that car um livery's lucky it's got big silver fern on it so we sort of want to replicate that and you know where young kids can say that's where i want to go that's what i want to do that's sort of my dream and goal and my pathway also for young kids that don't necessarily have all the budget to be able to do it as well because obviously our sport's incredibly expensive um that's an important aspect we don't want to but at the same time we don't want to give a full scholarship to someone um reason being is that we want them to work we want to want them to understand the value of how hard it is to be out there because that sponsorship drive never stops. Um, you know, you've always got to be on it on that sense. So um, that's sort of what we're, that's the dream. Um, it's starting to build momentum. It takes time, but we've got a, we've got a few candidates already lined up. So that's pretty cool. If I said electric racing, what would you say? Oh, it's, it's interesting. In terms of performance, um, it's phenomenal. I mean, the power and performance is better than, a, than an ICE engine. Um, but is it the same with the smell and the, the pure raw emotion? I don't think so. Um, but that's what all the young kids want, right? So I guess we, we have to follow. Do you think all the young kids want that or is it just us old folks that don't want it? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. That's, I mean, what's crazy at the moment is that I think it's the way of the future in terms of you know, road car driving and, and stuff like that. But in terms of what creates a great show, I'm not sure yet. And I think people people still people still love that fascination of driving. And, you know, everyone talks about, drive, uh, you know, self-driving cars and we won't have steering wheels one day and things like that. 
but I still think motor racing will be around and people forever have always wanted to challenge the limits of going fast and doing stuff. I mean, people love driving. I mean, people do a Sunday drive. They, they buy a second or third car just to have a, a car to enjoy themselves and go on a drive. So I don't think people are ever going to want to stop driving, which is a beautiful thing. You saw the demise of the LMP1 program, and now we understand the IMSA program will uh, cease at the end of this year. So what is in the future now? And you've already given us a hint, and that, that blew me away. Uh, the NASCAR is NASCAR, is that the project for 2021 or are you not willing to give that away right now? Oh, it's difficult. You know what NASCAR is like. It's really, really hard to get into. Um, now, it's a little bit of a project for 2020 at the moment. So it's actually been in the pipeline for nearly a year at the moment. So it's working away. Hopefully it'll, COVID-19 keeps screwing up the calendar of where we're actually going to go race it. Um, but you might have seen some pictures on the side of a, on the side of a truck already as well. Um, it's one of the team's trucks. So I'll let you guys go work that out and, and see where it might be. That's, that's, that's no fun whatsoever having to figure that one and what I'm sitting then, here talking then, to you. Then I, then I can, I mean, what would be a cool fact is I think I'd be the first ever Kiwi to do that. No other Kiwi's ever driven in NASCAR, have they? Nope, they haven't. We've had an Aussie, but we haven't had a Kiwi. So you're exactly. saying, okay, so, all right, now, now you've got me a little bit excited. So you're saying before the end of 2020, you'll be in a NASCAR, fully blind NASCAR or Xfinity, the second tier? Oh, uh, we're, work, we're working on it. We're working on it. <laughs> when it's you difficult. Like I said, COVID, COVID, COVID keeps changing the benchmark. Originally, it was supposed to be Xfinity. Might be other stuff. Let's see. It's hard, I can tell you, because one week, one week we were supposed to go up to Mid-Ohio, now we're, now we're trying to go to Daytona. It's, it changes every week. When you, when you think back to what your dad said all those years ago as a seven-year-old, that, you know, would you like to consider another hobby because you're actually too slow and I'm tired of coming last all the time? What do you say to him now? Uh, like he's, he would never say it, but he's super proud. Um, you know, he, he absolutely loves it, and... I think the worst thing is that if I ever try to date someone or do anything, I've only got one topic, which is motor racing. I've pretty much, you know, lived and breathed it since I was a kid, since I was seven years old. So I'm pretty boring on the old topics on different stuff because I just literally do racing. I think normally I do like 20, 25 races a year. So um, I'm pretty bad at living and breathing it. Passion. That's what it's all about, right? Passion to keep doing what you're doing. And while you're good, you keep on doing it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, I think they always say if you can turn your, your hobby into your job, you never work a day in your life. And um, I don't think I've ever worked a day. We work hard. I've got a few grey hairs now after joining Porsche with all that stuff. But, um, you know, in the end, I wouldn't change it for anything else. And, you know, people sort of ask, what would you do? What would you do outside of another job? I'm not sure what I would do. I'd probably still be a mechanic or something like that because I just enjoy it. Earl, I can tell you one thing. Uh, we in the motorsport community and the wider community in this country are very proud to know that you are a Kiwi who has continued to fly the, the silver fern in our flag uh, globally and have turned into one of the best, the best uh, motorsport drivers in the world and continue to do so. Thanks for joining us on the pod, mate. The best of luck. And I will now go and try and figure out where and who you're going to be racing for in NASCAR. Good luck. I'm curious what you come up with. Thanks, buddy.